Once again this week, we will pause for two minutes of silent prayer, reflection, and rest between the reading of the second lesson and the sermon. I'm getting ready to read a very familiar story, so I invite you to reflect on this story during that time and think about whether you hear something new when you have a moment to breathe and wonder. Together, friends, let us listen for the word of God as I, listen, as I read from Luke 15, beginning at verse 11. Then Jesus said, There was a man who had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the wealth that will belong to me. So he divided his assets between them. A few days later, the younger son gathered all he had and traveled to a distant region, and there he squandered his wealth in dissolute living. When he had spent everything, a severe famine took place throughout that region, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that region who sent him to his fields to feed the pigs. He would gladly have filled his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating. And no one gave him anything. But when he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired hands have bread enough and to spare? But here I am dying of hunger. I will get up and go to my father and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me like one of your hired hands. So he set off and went to his father. But while he was still far off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion. He ran and put his arms around him and kissed him. Then the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his slaves, quickly, Bring out a robe, the best one, and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. And get the fatted calf and kill it. And let us eat and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. They began to celebrate. Now his elder son was in the field. And as he came and approached the house, he heard music. And dancing. He called one of the slaves and asked what was going on. He replied, Your brother has come, and your father has killed the fatted calf because he has got him back safe and sound. Then he became angry and refused to go in. His father came out and began to plead with him, but he answered his father, Listen, for all these years I have been working like a slave for you, and I have never disobeyed your command, yet you have never even given me a young goat so that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came back, who has devoured your assets with prostitutes, you killed the fatted calf for him. Then the father said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. 
But we had to celebrate and rejoice because this brother of yours was dead and has come to life. He was lost and has been found. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. I won't ask for a show of hands, but as I read the story from Luke's gospel, I wonder how many of you relate more easily to the older brother. As I think you know, I'm an older sister to a younger brother, so at least at some point, I very much related to the older brother in the story. As a child, I had my running list of things that were not fair. My younger brother got to see his first PG movie the same day I did. He got to spend the night out at an earlier age than I did. And of course, when I headed off to college, he got to be doted upon as an only child. Sure, I did too, but I was only an only from birth to 26 months. He was an only from 16 to 18 and maybe a bit more able to appreciate all that comes with being an only child of almost empty nesters. In addition to a kitchen regularly stocked with all of his favorite snacks, he also managed to get a cat out of the deal. I'm not sure our sympathizing with the older brother is entirely dependent on our birth order, however. We've been taught to understand that the father in the story is a stand-in for God, and for those of us who have been faithful, rule-abiding church people who attend worship more Sundays than not, who serve on committees, clean the kitchen, weed the grounds, who teach and give and show up without fail, we too can easily begin to feel a bit grumpy at the thought of God loving those other people as much as God loves us. We too can find ourselves insisting, listen, for all these years I've been working my fingers to the bone for you. I've played by the rules and kept my nose clean and done every single thing you have asked of me. You've never thrown a party for me, nothing like the one you're throwing for him anyway. Do I even matter to you? Am I an afterthought in this household? Do I even belong here with you? This parable, as you may know, is preceded by the parables of the lost coin and the lost sheep. So it seems Jesus is concerned to emphasize that even when one is missing, God is determined to look, to seek, to find. And God is determined to celebrate when the lost one is found. The text uses the word celebrate four times in the span of just a few verses. God wants to celebrate, and God wants everyone at the party, older and younger siblings alike. But it's hard to be sympathetic to that that younger brother, right? After all, he rudely asks his father for a share of the inheritance to cash out and get away as soon as he can. He does not invest prudently or even plunge his money into a brilliant, if risky, Kickstarter plan to innovate pig farming. No, he takes what he has given, and he blows it recklessly 
completely disregarding all that he has been taught, all that is good and wise and faithful, he finds himself barely existing in a foreign land where, unlike his kind and generous father, no one gave him anything. We are told that he comes to himself or comes to his senses, which sounds like a wake-up call as well as an epiphany. And he begins to rehearse what he will say to cajole his way back in to at least get the same food the servants get. I have sinned against heaven and before you. At least one scholar insists that the younger son does not repent or that his repentance is less than genuine. She makes the case that sheep and coins cannot repent and yet their return is celebrated and she wants to claim the same thing with the sons. Yes, plural, sons. Because at least at one point along the way, neither son feels he belongs. I realize that it may sound a bit tone deaf to preach about Sabbath in the midst of a world that is in tatters, a world that just keeps finding new ways to break God's heart and ours. The more I listened to these texts over the past few weeks, I realized just how urgently I need reminders about Sabbath, about who I am and about who we are as people learning again to practice Sabbath. And I am convinced that the larger battered world needs a community that practices Sabbath faithfully. Because Sabbath is not a call to hide from the world, but rather an essential practice that enables us to faithfully engage the world that God so dearly loves, the very world that Christ comes to save. The text from Deuteronomy speaks explicitly about the call to practice Sabbath or a sabbatical year every seven years. And this Sabbath keeping urges the community to forgive or release debts and begin anew every seven years. They're called to weave Sabbath not just into their weekly calendar, but into a larger community rhythm, too. And then we read about this wasteful, extravagantly, maybe even foolishly forgiving father. And we realize that we have been forgiven in abundance as well. But if we never pause, If we never turn off the noise of the larger world and listen, if we never find a way to stop, abide, and rest in that love, it can be hard for that love to sink deep in within us, and we will miss how that love can work on us and in us and through us. A beloved seminary professor, Sib Towner, loved to describe the father in this text in the most vivid of terms. He would insist that we imagine this wealthy, landowning father in his full-length robes, a power and a presence in the community who would be expected to behave in a certain way. Sib then invited us to picture this same man's hiking up his robes and running in the most undignified way, at full speed, toward his slovenly, likely smelly, surely exhausted, and just barely repentant son. I like to imagine his hiking up his robe and tracking down the older brother, too. 
Father's concern is not for his own dignity or reputation. No, his concern, his passion is for his children to be home with him. His deepest longing is that they know they belong. Like you, I have been heartsick by the recent shootings in Buffalo, Uvalde, and Highland Park. Each time another shooting happens, and sadly I'm afraid there'll be more, we wonder aloud as a society about why, about what could lead these young men, and it's often young men, to do such monstrous things. A study came out a while back looking at the young men who've been the shooters in some recent years, and at least some evidence points to alienation, to a belief that they do not belong. The media is quick to label them monsters, and honestly, I probably have to. But I'm beginning to wonder what, if anything, the church can offer to young men who are longing for a place to belong, who are already busy at work finding their home in a culture that tells them this kind of violence is not only okay, but something to be celebrated. Because these young men are not monsters. The acts they commit are monstrous, yes, but they were babies once. They lost first teeth and took first steps. And somewhere along the way, something went terribly wrong and someone let them down. They lost their way. They lost any sense of love and belonging if they ever had it to begin with. I attended a workshop about four years ago where the leader told us about Angela King and Tony McAleer the founders of Life After Hate. One article describes their group in this way. It begins with compassion. Founded by former extremists, we are committed to helping people leave the violent far right. We are dedicated to inspiring all people to a place of compassion and forgiveness for themselves and each other. King and McAleer's work takes them around the country to be on the front lines of hate speech and hate groups. At a rally in Boston in the spring of 2017, they didn't join the shouting. They held up a sign. And their sign spoke for them. There is life after hate. They speak from experience. They both know that former life well. With this group, I felt power where I felt powerless. I felt a sense of belonging where I felt invisible. Tony, age 49, said of the pull of the white nationalism that had lured him to spend 15 years as a skinhead recruiter and an organizer for the white Aryan resistance. Dr. Irvin Staub studies this phenomenon for a living. He writes, why would people join groups like that? It usually involves their finding no other socially acceptable and meaningful ways to fulfill important needs. The need for identity, the need for a feeling of effectiveness, the need for a feeling of connection. 
If you don't feel you have much influence and power in the world, you get a sense of power from being part of a community. The need for community. The need for identity. The need for connection. Does any of this ring any bells? I do not claim to know or have all the answers. And I recognize that the issues of gun violence and hate groups and mass shootings are incredibly complex, to say the least. So there is much I do not know. However, I do know what it is to have found my identity within a community. By the grace of God and the work of the Holy Spirit, I have found my identity in and with a covenant people. These people have promised to love God and to love me and to serve one another in God's name, working for peace and justice and mercy and redemption. The young people who have been swept up and are being swept up in hate groups are hungry for a community, for a place to belong, and they found it. Couldn't we offer them another way? Whether we are older sisters or younger brothers or something else entirely, we find our identity in Jesus Christ, the one who shows us God's run down the robe, road, robe hiked up, undignified love for us and tells us we belong. In him, we know there is life after, not only after hate, but also after failure, trauma, addiction, disappointment, loss and despair. In him, we find that we belong. We're reminded at each and every baptism that the promise, this unearned, undeserved promise of grace and new life is for us and, quote, for all who are far away. It's hard to get much farther away than to be drowning in hate or depression or addiction or debt or anger or resentment or fear. Yet we are a people who know that there is life after all these things. Or at least we're supposed to. And on my best days, I do. On those days when I struggle to remember, when I am quick to point a finger in outrage or fold my arms in resentment, it is the full stop of Sabbath, this merciful intrusion that brings me around and reorients me. Sabbath is a corrective to my stubborn insistence on hanging out in pig slop or gritting my teeth as I slave away in the fields when a celebratory feast awaits me at home. It is in worship and silence and rest and hearing God's good word to me that I am able to realize again at my core whose I am and all that I have been given. Only in my stopping, in my resting, in my worshiping, in my shutting up and slowing down, am I able to hear the pounding footsteps of my beloved parent racing down the road toward me to celebrate my coming home. This parent comes toward me with arms stretched wide no matter where I have wandered, no matter what I have squandered, before I can even put together an eloquent confession. 
Friends, we are lost coins and lost sheep and lost children who have been found. It is this good news that the church can offer to this heartbroken and heartbreaking world. We do not get everything right 100% of the time, nor do we hold all the answers. We can throw open our doors and hold up a sign that declares that there is life after hate. Life after despair, life after failure, life after loss. Not simply in the sweet by and by, but here and now. As those who wear Christ's name, as those who know what it is to abide and rest and maybe float in his love. We have a message to shout from the rooftops. A message to write in the biggest sharpie on the biggest sign. This news is far too good to keep to ourselves. You and I know that the larger church is known for a lot of things right now. And not all of them are all that good, to be honest. What if we were known for Sabbath and welcome and hope instead? We are Christ's beloved ones always, no matter what, as are they, no matter who they are, no matter what they have done. There is life after, the sign says. Those words are so much more than words on a sign. Those words are a reminder, a promise for them and for us. And when we pause and breathe and pray and listen, When we allow those words to sink deep into our being, we remember whose we are and we are able to see more clearly who and whose they are too. This pausing, this resting enables us and compels us to do the holy work of welcoming the lost, the angry, the weary, the worn down, the failures and the faltering. In the name of the God who runs not from us, but headlong toward us in Jesus Christ. In Christ, God has thrown open the door to a home where we belong, a place where we can rest. And the same God calls us to open those those doors to them, whoever they may be as well, no matter who they are, no matter what they have done, no matter how far away they may be, a home with him. And with us, where they can belong and rest too. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.